your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Good afternoon, and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, an international nonprofit organization dedicated to providing support, education, and hope to people with cancer and their loved ones. Our services are offered at over 100 locations worldwide and online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. We all know that it only takes an instant for your life to change dramatically. Uh, One minute you can be on top of the world, and the next you're faced with a a life-or-death decision. Receiving a cancer diagnosis is one of those life-altering moments. And In our episode today, we'll speak with a husband and wife who together survived a difficult cancer experience and then went on to write about it in hopes of inspiring others. But before we begin, let's move to a segment we call Cancer in the News, which highlights the latest cancer headlines. I'm Bill Schaefer, and this is today's Cancer in the News. A recent study reported that women who take part in a quick counseling session on breast self-examination, reinforced with a couple of follow-up calls, are more likely to perform the exams regularly. According to researchers, these brief intervention programs can be effective at encouraging self-screening for cancer and could easily be modified to target other screening practices, such as skin or testicular cancer screening, that are associated with reduced cancer morbidity and mortality. The researchers randomly assigned 616 women from ages 40 to 70, all of whom had negative mammograms in the previous two months, to the Breast Self-Examination Instruction Program or to a control group given nutrition advice on preventing cancer. The counseling session, which lasted 30 to 45 minutes, included instruction on how to do breast self-examinations, practicing using silicone models, and discussions about barriers women had to doing breast self-examinations and how to address these barriers. For example, many women said they didn't know what to do if they found a lump in their breast, and they got information on how to reach their HMO's breast health clinic. Women in both groups also got follow-up calls to check on their progress one and two months after the intervention. One year later, 59% of the women in the breast self-examination group reported examining their breasts for at least five minutes every month, considered adequate breast self-examination performance, compared to 12% of the women in the control group. Women who felt that they were at great risk of developing breast cancer were actually less likely than those who didn't believe they were at high risk to examine their breasts regularly, the researchers noted, although this finding wasn't statistically significant. This finding, they say, underscores the complexity of the relationship between self-care behaviors and perceived vulnerability to developing breast cancer. I'm Bill Schaefer, and that's this week's Cancer in the News. As I mentioned at the top of the show, being diagnosed with a serious illness such as cancer can turn your entire world upside down. While research and science play significant roles in a person's recovery, so too do friends and family. Having a strong support network can help give you the strength you need to stay hopeful and maintain an active role in your recovery. 
At the wellness community, we call this the patient active concept. It states that people with cancer who actively participate in their recovery along with their health care team will improve the quality of their lives and may enhance the possibility of their recovery. Today, we are joined by two guests who really embody the patient active concept and have written a book to inform and inspire others who may be faced with a serious illness. The book is called The Power of Two, Surviving Serious Illness with an Attitude and an Advocate. And we're thrilled to have both authors here to talk about their amazing experience. Uh, First, we have Brian Monahan. Brian was, until uh, diagnosed with his illness, a highly successful plaintiff's trial attorney in San Diego. He currently serves on the board of directors of the American Ireland Fund, the Salk Institute International Council, Hastings College of Law at the University of California, and the San Diego Padres. Welcome, Brian. How are you doing? Great, great. And we are also joined by your lovely wife, Brian, Jerry Monahan. Jerry was not only Brian's partner, but became his caregiver and advocate after he was diagnosed with cancer. They have been married for 14 years. They have four children and seven grandchildren. Thanks for being here, Jerry. Well, thanks for having us, Kim. It's wonderful. So I want to get right into your story here. So, Brian, uh, take us back, if you would, to um, 1998 and tell us what that year was like for you. Well, it was May of 1998. Uh, I had just finished a four-month trial, exhausting but a very successful trial. Uh, I was at the top of my game as far as I was concerned, uh, both professionally and personally. Uh, Jerry and I had married uh, only three years before. Each of us had been single parents for many years, and we had met and um, were married. Uh, everything seemed to be wonderful. Our children, uh, as some of the things you just mentioned, were wonderful. Uh, but Jerry noticed some problems, uh, and I think she can express that. But in any case, uh, I uh, was sent by Jerry to go to see the doctor. The doctor complete exam, and he said, you're fine. I told that to Jerry, and she said, that's not good enough. Something's wrong. I sent you, She sent me back again to see another doctor. And uh, he said he seemed to feel I was pretty good. And uh, But he did, at Jerry's insistence, um, uh, I had an MRI, so I was waiting for that result. So I was at home the next day, at the office the next day, um, and I got a phone call, and uh, a doctor called me, a fellow I knew pretty well, and he said, Brian, I want you to come to my office right away, but don't drive. And he said that twice, mm. but don't drive, and that was the terrifying part of it. What did you think then when he said that, Brian? Well, I, d- I didn't know. I knew there was something wrong. I just It was sort of... Uh, this doesn't make any sense. I'm doing fine. Why? How could this happen? Yeah. And so when? So so how did you get to the office? Well, Jerry picked me up, and we got there, and we uh, talked about it. We got to, when we arrived there. The nurses were waiting for us, and reception. They just pushed us right by everybody and said, "Are these?" Uh, the doctors uh, waiting. <laughs> yeah, the doctors waiting, and we went right in, uh, and uh, we had the lengthy conversation. It was. In that day, that I I learned that I had some very serious problems. Within a few days, I was I I knew that I had melanoma and and two t- tumors in my head, a brain rather. I had my lymph nodes. I was stage four, uh, and there is no five, mm-hmm. as you may know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I was told I had three to six months to live. Three to six months. Right. And that was almost eleven years ago. Yes. It shows that there is. Hope against all odds. Yeah, yeah. So, Jerry, what what did you notice in Brian that made you so insistent that he go and have these uh, these doctor visits? During the trial, he had been extremely exhausted, but we all 
you know, said that that's because he was approaching 60, and trial work is one of the most exhausting things you can do. But I noticed that the wonderful communicator he had always been just wasn't operating up to speed. He would start to tell a story or a joke, things that he was always famous for as the quintessential Irishman, and the end of the joke wouldn't come. He would just draw an absolute blank. I knew something was wrong, and one day I sat down next to him on the bed as he woke up. I said, Brian, can you add 50 and 27? And he couldn't do it. I immediately called a friend of ours who was a doctor, and I said, something's seriously wrong. We need to get some more information. I think that was my first step in the role of being an advocate. And and you went in and you heard this news together. We did. And did you did you take it in differently? Did you um, were you both just 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 stunned at that point, or was one of you sort of an information gatherer at that point and figuring out what next steps were? Or how did you guys deal with that as a sort of well, a team? As I, as a trial lawyer, you don't uh, in in the middle of a trial you don't start. Uh, uh, whining or anything like that, you sort of suck it in and start to observe what you need to do and don't say anything. So I just sort of absorbed it in in sort of the somewhat. I wasn't shocked, but I did. I was absorbing it, taking it in. I think Jerry took the took the pitch. I I understood it um, to be when you hear we didn't know melanoma was the diagnosis right away. I suspected it because he had had a spot on his back a few years before. But the words, you have two brain tumors, just bring you to your knees. Um, I had almost a physical reaction. I didn't cry, but I had to keep swallowing. The taste of bile kept coming up in my mouth. Mm. Uh, Within half an hour, though, we looked at each other, and I held on to Brian, and I said, I don't know how much time we're going to have left, but we are going to love and laugh and fight this with everything we have, and you're going to win. And we had a lot of laughs during those those years. Those many unexpected years. Yes. yes. So, so what what happened then? What, did the doctor um, suggest any course of treatment at that point? I mean, he told you he had no. at least three to six months to live. Was he suggesting, uh, you know, any kind of treatment, any approach at that point? What, what, what was the advice at that point? He wasn't even an oncologist. He was mm-hmm. an. Uh, uh, he treats diabetes. I always forget what um, one that is. But in any event, he was a friend, and he took it upon himself to be the one to tell us uh, what happened and, uh, or what, that the diagnosis was two brain tumors. They didn't know really the cause, and it happened on a Friday afternoon, and, of course, it was Memorial Day weekend, so we spent a long, long weekend before we could get in to see any other doctors on the following Tuesday. But during that time, we started... Um, down the road of uh, putting a battle plan together. We decided we were going to fight it. Uh, We weren't going to give up without doing our best. We got the word out to everyone we knew, asking for help, asking them to contact people they might know. Who knew anything about it? At that point, the only thing we could do with the computer was play free cell. Um, But we had people, friends, Um, Some of our children, we asked for help in getting on the computer and seeing what was on the Internet. We put out a call to general quarters to everyone, and that helped tremendously. This cancer problem affects every single one of us. I don't know of anyone who's not touched in some way. We're all in this together, and we need to reach out and 
help the next person. And on my side, the most important part was I had been a trial lawyer for more than 30 years, and now I suddenly needed an advocate. And I learned after the first few meetings we had with doctors that I didn't need one. I desperately needed an advocate, and were it not for that, I probably wouldn't be here talking to you today. So when you did you decide when you walked out of that appointment that you weren't accepting the prognosis of three to six months? I mean, did you decide that, or did you just say, we're going to make this three to six months the best that we can? We're going to fight it with everything we have. We didn't even know three to six months in that first meeting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it took, you know, a couple of more meetings before we got the understanding of what melanoma in stage four. But you sort of said, we're, we're, kind of, we're, we're, we're not necessarily going to accept this, or we're going to fight it. No, I don't think anyone should accept the words cancer as a death sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's one of the worst things possible, that you, if you can curl up into the fetal position, uh, but it's not going to do you any good. You have yeah. the choice of fight or flight, and we chose to fight. And I think there is, the last part of the book, I talked a lot about the idea of there is hope that's going on throughout this this country and this world, and, and that's what I tried to picture. I put it forward out in that, that is issues. So we have just a couple minutes until our our, uh, our break coming up here. But so so then so tell us what were your next steps then when you finally got the diagnosis? Um, did you have surgery? Did you have treatment? Did you have tell tell us what the, the you know what that course looked like over the well, next? The first the first need that we had was to get rid of the cancer that was in my brain and in my lymph nodes, mm-hmm. and the the brain was the most important area. The tumors that were there had to be done. So we looked at various. We went, we went to different places around the country, and and finally decided in you know, to go to uh, UCSF University of San Francisco. University of California in San Francisco, yes. and they did a gamma knife procedure mm-hmm. of the idea to get rid of those two brain tumors. They were successful in the one of the brain tumors, but the other one they were not quite successful, and they had to, had to do uh, eventually two tumors. The first, I mean, uh, two uh, craniotomies. Yep. Mm-hmm. The first of those was a eight and a half hour uh, open craniotomy, which means I was awake during that procedure. During an eight-and-a-half-hour surgery, you were awake. Yes. They were doing brain mapping, Kim, because the uh, large tumor was over Brian's left temporal lobe, his speech and communication center. Mm-hmm. And they were trying to do everything possible to make sure that when Brian was wheeled out of that operating room, he had the ability to speak. It was very incredibly serious. So a very, very technical procedure. Absolutely. Very serious, very technical. Eight and a half hours. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Um, guys, we're going to take a, uh, we're, we're, we're going to take a quick break. Um, I want to just let our folks know that we've got two amazing guests with us uh, today. We have Brian and Jerry Monahan. Um, they have written a book called The Power of Two, Surviving Serious Illness with an attitude and an advocate. Uh, we're talking today about the book. We're talking about Brian's um, incredible uh, cancer experience and Jerry's role uh, as, his, uh, as his caregiver uh, and as his advocate. Um, and we are going to take a quick break here on Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and we will be right back. Your life, your health, your network. Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo, and today we're talking with Brian and Jerry Monahan, co-authors of the book, The Power of Two, Surviving Serious Illness with an Attitude and an Advocate. <clears throat> As it says right there in the title, uh, an important part of your book focuses on advocacy, on being a caregiver. Um, Jerry, tell us what being Brian's advocate has meant to you over these years. Well, I think, first of all, it meant fighting for the life of the man I love. Uh, it meant girding myself up for the battle ahead. We approached it as uh, a battle, and I knew initially that we didn't have a good chance of winning, but I knew we were going to give it everything we had. And I learned many, many things along the way about being an advocate. I think it's even more than a caregiver. An advocate is someone who is willing when your patient is on emotional overload or in pain or just simply unable to speak up for themselves, the advocate is the person who needs to be there asking the questions, uh, not taking no for a final answer, and, and in general being the field marshal of the, the fight that you're in. Jerry, when, when uh, Brian was diagnosed, um, how, how old were, were all of the, uh, the children at that point, and what, what did you guys do in terms of uh, deciding to talk to them about the diagnosis? They were all grown. They were all out of college, and um, let's see, two, three, three of them were married, and the, and the fourth one um, was not yet married. So it, we weren't dealing with young children. I, I think you have to have a, a different approach for that. Um, our children became part of our team. One of my sons was the one who did the um, initial research. He and his wife got on the Internet and helped us. Um, another son would go to uh, some of the treatments with us. Um, daughter Kathy came up to San Francisco after some of the surgeries. So they were part of the team much more so than younger children would be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you, just, you really just brought them into the process. Absolutely. Um, so, Brian, you, know, you, you guys talked about how you and Jerry 
decided you were going to fight this and, and really um, really decide what kind of outlook you were going to have through this experience, that you were going to take a positive outlook, you were going to fight through this. Um, tell us how you kind of arrived at that, uh, you know, at that, at that idea to do that, and, um, and why, why do you think it's so important to have hope through, through a cancer diagnosis? Well, um, um, I, I believe that we, I, needed a, I needed a mission. And the mission is to pay pay forward these these issues. Uh, um, um. Brian's a hopeful guy, anyhow. Uh, one of the sayings that Brian has is, um, "I look at life as the glass is half full, mm-hmm. and someone is still pouring." That's that's his attitude. He is a hopeful person, and fortunately, he maintained that and kept it going even through the darkest times. He was always able to laugh. And is is this is, is this an attitude that you guys have had throughout your whole life? I mean, is this yes. the way you live your life? So you just sort of said, "Well, this is how we this is how we are." So this is how we're going to apply that to the cancer experience. Right. There's no reason for cancer to change who we are as people. I think you'll see in there the uh, one of the doctors, uh, the neurosurgeon who did the surgery that I talked about a little while later, talked about that laughter himself feels that uh, it might be one of the reasons why I survived. Yeah. Laughter and a good support group and people who are part of the team is what our neurosurgeon said. People who are willing to be proactive and involved in their care have a much better success rate than those who do not. Yeah, that we find that absolutely true with the wellness community. I uh-huh. mean, we're so much about community and people connecting with one another, finding a, a community of support, a community of hope, um, being able to connect with others who are who are going through that. And we do know, even with any illness, not just cancer, but with any uh, you know health related issue, if you have a support network around you, people who have that network do better. Uh, than, than those who do not. Absolutely. Um, In fact, when we were doing research for the book, um, we put the wellness community as one of our resources in our websites in the back of the book without e- even knowing you. Wonderful, wonderful. We have you know 26 communities now across the country where uh, thousands and thousands of people are coming to find support and, and, and find hope and, and really get connected. And they need that. You know, Jerry, one of the things that we also find in our wellness communities is that um, – uh, it's not only the cancer patient who needs hope and, you know, needs support and needs a community, but um, the, the caregiver, the advocate. Absolutely, Kim. I knew that um, hopefully we were going to be in this for the long run, yeah. and I knew that in order to do that, I needed to take care of myself. I needed to keep exercising. I needed friends who would come and stay with Brian so I could go out running or I could go out and visit the grandchildren. Yeah. Uh, the advocate often gets short shrift in this, and I think it's important um, that the advocate take care of themselves, and then Brian. And it was my belief that I had a responsibility, too. Um, I could uh, lay in a hospital there, but I could pick up the phone. I could call over and send flowers to her. I could do, I could call up a friend and say, look, Cherry's worn out. Give her a break. Yeah. Uh, come on and spend some time in here, will you, or something like that. Uh, so, uh, you have a job, too, and that job is to help your advocate. And I also want to share something with other advocates. You are not responsible for either a good or a bad outcome. Yeah. You need to be gentle with yourself and understand that just by being there, being the person who asks the questions, who is standing up to the doctors, who is monitoring the, the medicines being given, doing all you can, you have given your patient some extra advantage, a little edge 
that can tip the scales, but you're not responsible if things don't turn out well. You have done all you could, and and that in itself is a blessing. Yeah. And, and Jerry, um, what, what do you suggest that people people do, um, you know, obviously when you have this situation in your family, you know, folks have friends, they have neighbors, they have coworkers who say, you know, how can I help or what can I do and what, you know, what, what, how do you take advantage of that? How do you, how do you direct people, so to speak, right. to help you in the ways that you actually need help and how do you learn how to say, you know, yes uh, to those offers of help? We talk about that in the book, and one of the things I, I think um, you need to do is maybe have a third part of the team. Um, as an advocate, I always had trouble asking for help for myself, but it was nice when there was a friend who would say, hey, let's get together and organize a supper club for the Monahans. Um, even if it's twice a week and somebody drops off a casserole, let's organize that. Let's do that. Um, when I found when you are in the hospital Having somebody come by and bring bottles of water w- mm-hmm. was absolutely wonderful. Um, do things that are specific. Don't say to a friend who's going through a cancer experience, um, can I help in any way? Say to them, I know you're going to be in the hospital. Can I walk your dog for you? Right. Can right. I go pick up uh, your cars in the shop? Can I go get it for you? If you'll say a specific offer of help, you're more likely to be taken up on it. I tell about the time we came back, you know, back home, oh. sitting on the driveway. Or, mm-hmm. and... One time, just when this all happened, we were going to be taking the trip of a lifetime. We were going to Italy um, on a vacation, something we had planned for for years. And it was two days before we were to leave that we wound up getting the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And we came home from shuttling back and forth to different doctors, and on our doorstep was a little basket, and it had a bottle of Italian wine, um, a jar of pasta sauce, some uh, pasta, and an Andrea Bocelli CD, <laughs> and a note that said, we're sorry, you couldn't go to Italy, we're bringing Italy to you. Oh, that's fantastic. And I have done that same thing for people. It wasn't Italy, they were supposed to go to Mexico, and you know, I, I did a, a little Mexican. Things like that can warm the hearts of people who are in trouble, and we all need to do that for other people. And we can do it. That's not a big deal. But it, it can brighten the day of, of a patient and their advocate. Yeah, I think people need to do it. And I think, you know, I think people also need to learn how to accept it sometimes. That's true. That's know. my biggest failing. <laughs> yeah, I think that, that a lot of times folks say, you know, they don't want to burden people or they don't want to seem needy or they don't, you know, they want to seem like they have it all together. And so they, they don't accept that, that support that's being offered. That was the lesson I needed to learn in this battle. Yeah, yeah. Well, so she Bri- learned them all, let me tell you. <laughs> so, Brian, you, you talked about the fact that you had um, some really unbelievable surgeries. Um, and then after your recovery from the surgeries, then, then what were your next steps after that? Well, the first thing we needed to do after the surgeries was uh, to deal with the issue that, that melanoma is a brain board a blood-borne, blood-borne mm-hmm. disease, yeah, and it was going to we're going to, it's coming back. It had already come back, and so we so we had to find some system, and there was no system like it. So we had to find a, a new approach to it, and we wound up wounding up in in um, in Texas in the Baylor, uh, uh, Dallas, yeah, mm-hmm. Dallas, mm-hmm. and I went for the first person. I was the first person to try this new experimental treatment, and uh, it's called a dendritic cell program. 
And, and what kind of treatment was that? Was that like an IV or an injection? Well, Terry or... could explain it probably better. I give it in very uh, flash words. <laughs> it was an immunotherapy where um, it's a vaccine created from your own um, extra white blood cells that they turn into dendritic cells, uh, and they they're teacher cells. They're the uh, the generals of the immune system. So it's helping your immune system gear up and go on um, back into the attack mode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this was done in, as a, in a clinical trial as an experimental treatment in Texas. Absolutely. Yes. And when that was uh, when it was successful, and uh, they had all the, the records to show that it was uh, successful, people started to call us from around the country asking for, you know, information and help and hope and so forth. And, and that was sort of the beginning of the building of this, of this, uh, of this eventually became a book. We didn't intend to do it as a book. We intended to send messages to people and write it up and things like that, but it moved into this. In the meantime, however, um, I received uh, some rather shocking more information, and that is that... Uh, after several seizures that I had, I, I developed uh, um, aphasia, mm-hmm. uh, which at one point uh, st- stopped me from the ability to walk or talk or speak or anything. So I had to go back and learn how to do all of that. I had to learn how to speak and read, and and, and I've been doing that for years, and I'm still doing it. So the, so the, the surgery and the treatment and all of that, that was over the course of how many months? Uh, the that all started in the first surgery was July of 1998, and the last craniotomy was in August of 2000. Um, and then there were some other problems with blood clots, and again, the the radiation damage and the seizures caused the aphasia, and that was probably one of Mo- the Brian's most difficult things because it was it's a very lonely battle trying to overcome aphasia. Yeah. Yeah, and any any and and they're fine. They're you're, you're cancer free since then. Since two thousand, yes. Wow, that's really really unbelievable to go from saying you have three to six months to live to being told you're cancer free. That feels pretty good, though. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would I, I would imagine so, Brian. I would imagine so. Uh, this is frankly speaking about cancer. We're going to take uh, a quick break. We have two great guests with us today. The authors of a book called The Power of Two: Surviving Serious Illness with an attitude and an advocate. Uh, Our guests are Brian and Jerry Monahan. We're talking about Brian's uh, cancer experience and Jerry's role as his advocate. We are going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or 
or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I am joined by Brian and Jerry Monahan, who wrote the book, The Power of Two, Surviving Serious Illness with an Attitude and an Advocate. Brian is a stage four melanoma survivor, and his wife, uh, Jerry, was his incredible caregiver and advocate and continues to uh, be an advocate. Sounds like not only for uh, Brian, but for many people uh, affected by cancer. Uh, Jerry, one of the best things about your book is uh, it is helpful to anyone who has gone through any kind of serious illness, not not just cancer. And uh, we know that you list throughout the book these uh, 50 tips. Um, and I want to talk uh, a little bit about uh, those tips and maybe, Jerry, give us a, whet our appetite a little bit, give us a couple of, the, of highlights of some of the tips so we can let folks know about what they're going to find in this book. Well, the, the tips are um, basically um, part of our story. It was how we were going along, and then in the back of the book, there's a section which uh, lays out all 50 tips um, and referred back to where it happened in the book. But there are pretty common-sense tips, things I learned along the way. Uh, I think I talked first about trusting your intuition and knowing that there was something wrong. Um, another one is gather your courage because you're going to need it. An advocate's notebook was one of the most important things I did. I brought it with me the first day, just grabbed something that was sitting there. It's covered with flowers. It's a little book that fits into my purse. And because it, it was that small, I had it with me everywhere. And I wrote down whatever was going on with Brian, from writing down what his blood pressure was to where they were giving the injections, which side first, phone numbers, Um, I tell how to create your own advocate's notebook, and I think it's one of the most important things you can do. I think one of the most important things is the development of uh, medical bills. I mean, that's a whole system that can... There's a section that we we talk on on how to look at the medical bills and and how best to deal with them. Um, I think another important thing is getting copies of records. When you go for an MRI or a CT scan, and hopefully you're going to go for a second or a third opinion, mm-hmm. when you go up to the receptionist desk, tell them you want a second set of um, those MRIs. No doctor wants to just read someone else's report. They want to see the actual films. Now they can put them on CDs and give it to you. It's, mm-hmm. it's one of those things that's very easy to do. With the advancing technology. Absolutely. I uh, thought uh, getting getting a dog is an important thing. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get a dog? Yes. We have a dog who um, became Brian. She had been my dog, and one day Brian got a phone call saying he had to come back for the second craniotomy. He just said one 
word we can't repeat. What and, crude word. And <laughs> handed me the phone, and at that moment, the dog got up, left my side, went over. Joy put her head on Brian's lap, and she has never left his side since. Uh, she knew something was going on. She got did. <laughs> she did. Uh, she's wonderful, and if you can have access to a dog or a, a pet of some kind, it helps take your mind off of things, and they're a wonderful companion. So it's not just trust your own intuition, but it's trust your dog's intuition. That's, that's, that's true. That's true. You need to make doctors speak in languages that you understand. Yeah. Um, we have a section called How to Get Out of the Hospital Alive, Mm. Um, I tried to escape twice. <laughs> he did, literally. <laughs> Jerry, go back for a minute, too. You talked about the importance of managing your, your, your medical bills and uh, all of that. Obviously, we're dealing with a pretty difficult economy right now, and, uh, you know, folks are struggling. And, and um, uh, we have actually in June a new booklet coming out called, uh, frankly speaking, about coping with the cost of your cancer care. And uh, there are going to be a lot of wonderful resources in that that, that talk about, how you do cope with the cost of care, because you know what 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 we've learned from folks is you're you're it's gonna it's, it's you're gonna have out of pocket expenses even if you do have insurance absolutely there are gonna be costs there are gonna be out of pocket expenses and we give people real you know some tips and advice on on really how to cope with the cost of care but but in terms of your own practical experience is it is it is it keeping things organized is it setting up a filing system is it what what did you learn through that somebody told me early on. Don't open the bills for a month, and I thought they were crazy, but um, you need to do that. Give yourself a few weeks so that your insurance catches up with the bills. You need to make sure that if you are insured, you're not getting a bill for something that's already been uh, covered by the insurance company. Um, you can be more specific about that, Jerry, if you could. Uh, well, they, when you get a bill, the doctor, the, say it's the caregiver, um, will often say the insurance company has paid their own amount and you are responsible for the rest of it. If they've entered into a contract with an insurer, that's not true. You need to call the insurer and find out what do I really owe. Um, people are often afraid that if they don't pay the medical bill right away, the doctor will start, stop treating them. That's not the case. Work with the insurance company um, and find out what your uh, benefits are and, and go from there. And we often found that the provider, the health care provider, would back down and say, oh, uh, that was a mistake. You shouldn't have gotten that bill. So I think maybe the bottom line is communication is key. It's not just about communication with your doctors or your health care team, but it's about communication with the insurance company, communication with the pharmacist, communication w with all of these players in your health care. Absolutely. You're part of a team, and you need to uh, incorporate as many people into being on your team as you can. So, Brian, go go back. You, you started to talk a little bit about the, the sort of the genesis of why you guys decided to write this book and 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 put put all this down on paper. Tell, go go back to to those conversations and and when well, you guys decided to do that. You know, as a trial lawyer, again, I keep going back to that because that's that's in part who I was and who I am. Uh, I needed a mission. I had a mission I, uh, when I was practicing law. I really was. I was very passionate about what I did, and now I felt. Uh, now I have I have seven grandkids. I never kids I never would have met. I mean, they're wonderful parts of my life. I've, um, there's so many parts of life that uh, I, uh, I would have missed had uh, had the, the way it done <laughs> the way it had done. Yeah, and That's we need, very well. We needed to pay it forward. We felt um, we were blessed. 
and we were very, very fortunate in reaching the right people. And Brian came up with this idea, something that I wasn't really um, onto at the fir- in the first part of it. Oh, you were of, terrible. <laughs> I, I didn't want anything to do with it. It's a, it was difficult writing this book and reliving all these experiences. Yeah. But I made um, a promise, and I said, if the book will help just one person, it will be worth it. And we know it has because people have reached out to us and have said, this did help. Your section on getting a second opinion made me go and get one, and um, the diagnosis was wrong. Um, so it, it did help, but it's it's the need to pay it forward. Um, Brian and I have donated 1,800 books that were sent out last week to the various cancer centers around the country, all the NCI centers. Yeah. Uh, it's part of our way of giving back or paying it forward. Uh, we're as I said before, we are all in this together, and we need to help each other. Well, that eighteen hundred is not the—that is just the beginning. We're going to do as much more as we can. Wow. Well, I know we'd love to get one in every one of our wellness community libraries. Well, we'll have to—we'll have to see about that. <laughs> yeah, that would be—that would be great. We've got twenty-six libraries around the country, oh, so that would be wonderful. Brian, did give us that information? We'll get—you'll get those babies. Right. Wonderful. Soon. We'll get you that. That'll be wonderful. Um, Brian, as a result of all of this, did you have to leave the law? Yes, I did. You did? The, the aphasia part of it, uh, yeah. uh, particularly, uh, I, I just can't, uh, if I can't read, yeah. and for a long time I couldn't read, I've gotten to a point where I can read, but I have to read very slowly. And and do you miss that? I did, uh, and, and to some extent I do, but uh, there are people who have trials, uh, important trials that are coming up, and they'll call me and they ask me to come down and talk to them, and I sort of help them out a lot. Yeah. And so I have that feeling of that without the, the drain and, and, and the, pressure. The, mm-hmm. the pressure that it has for you. And I'm, I've got a new mission, and this is the real focus. The two missions I have is uh, is the one we've been talking about, this book, and yeah. giving it to people. And, and the second one, it's not second, it's, or it might be the first, is yeah. the grandkids. Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, Jerry, we've got a couple minutes until we go to our break, but um, tell us about how this experience has, has uh, affected or changed your relationship with Brian, and did you, did you ever feel like maybe this was a blessing in disguise, or, uh, you know, how, how have you sort of thought about that? Um, I think I've probably had to assume more responsibilities in our relationship than we had before. Well, I think the responsibility, I'm, the, I'm, I'm in charge of the weather, and she does everything else. <laughs> <laughs> and as long as we live in San Diego, we usually do fine. But um, I, I have had to assume more responsibility simply because Brian couldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, there the upside to that is, um, that at one point Brian started talking about the gift of cancer. Um, and in all honesty, when he first mentioned that, I said, could we re-gift it? Uh, I, wasn't, I didn't want that as a gift. But you do take part in having people reach out and tell you that they love you. Yeah. You get to hear the things that people say at funerals, and you get to hear them while you're alive. Uh, you get to feel the love. You get to forgive people that you might not have chosen to forgive before. Yeah. Uh, so it puts things in perspective. Oh, and every day we turn to each other and say, "Aren't we lucky? Aren't we blessed? We are. You know, we feel so very fortunate, and we truly, truly appreciate it." I have trials that I had with people I fought against for years, and uh, after this was over, they 
uh, a couple, particularly one guy who's a Marine Corps general retired, and we fought each other for years and years, and he came up to me and told me he loved me. Oh, I think that wow. happens with many Marine Corps generals. <laughs> and, uh, wow, that is amazing. Uh, folks, this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We've been having a wonderful discussion today with Brian and Jerry Monahan, co-authors of the book, The Power of Two. Um, I'd like to ask both of you this question. Um, what, and I'm going to start with you, Brian. What do you hope people will take away from the book? What do you hope they'll walk away with after reading your book, Brian? Well, to say it in a few words is awfully difficult. We spent seven <laughs> years giving these, these uh, answers, but I'll give you a few. Number one, get an attitude. Uh, and secondly, get a tood. Uh, excuse me, get an attitude and get an, an advocate. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'd, I'd say, um, oh, um, uh, um, you know, there's, you know, there's so many things I'm so trying to do. So many things, yeah. I think um, what I hope people will walk away with is the understanding that there is hope. There is hope against all odds. But I think that that hope needs help, and I think it needs the help of an advocate. You can't do it alone. An advocate can't do it alone. We need to reach out to each other and to do it all together. There's a quote from uh, uh Block, and it's from Quiet Homes and First Beginnings. Out to the undiscovered ends, there's nothing worth the wear of winning but laughter and a love of friends. I think laughter is a vital part of it as well. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Any other um, any other tips from the book that you want to highlight, Jerry? I'd say be proactive and get involved. Um, look at this as uh, p- being part of the team, and you are the vital part. Take that role. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What 
what about what about additional tips on 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 working with the healthcare team? Or that you you talked a little bit earlier about someone said, "Boy, I'm glad you glad I read that section about getting a second opinion." Tell, tell us about the importance of that. About getting the second opinion yeah. is vital, um, and people often say to me, "Oh, I don't want to upset the doctor." Um, I turn to them and I'll say, "Have you seen? Did you buy the first house that you saw? Did you buy the first car that you saw?" or the first outfit that you saw, your first pair of shoes you tried on. How can you not do any less for yourself or the person that you love? A good doctor is not afraid of being challenged. Um, They might tell you that the information you've come up with is all wet, but they will accept that you want to be part of it. And I I think that doctors would appreciate the fact that they're not totally responsible for everything, that the patient is the involved person as well. And yeah. they're they're under a lot of pressure. Uh, their insurance companies demand they they uh, uh, do things quicker and so forth. It's tougher for them to communicate uh, the way they'd like to. That's true. I don't think they can spend as much time with patients as they would um, really appreciate doing. Um, but it's up to you to demand every bit of time that you can get from them. Yeah, yeah. So Brian, what what is um, are are you getting any? Uh, kind of therapy or care now, or wh- how are they monitoring you? Um, wh- you know, what's that like for you now? Well, there isn't really much. Uh, every year, I have uh, at, at least once I have an MRI, and also another one. I also have a CAT scan mm-hmm. to check out the two areas, the most significant areas that I've had the, uh, the surgery or the need for uh, cancer. So that's about it. Uh, Jerry oh, takes could. care of me. Other than that. <laughs> He goes to the dermatologist and has all the regular things, um, but we're now up to scans once a year, which is pretty miraculous. We were doing them every three months for a long time. Wow. Then every six. And, you know, other than having a new hip last year and a a new knee the year before, uh, he's doing absolutely incredibly well. And my theory on that is that he's outlived his warranty. (laughs) 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 And now we're replacing parts. Well, I'm 70 years old. So, Jerry, you said you guys have seven grandchildren? We do. And Tell us their names. We'll give them a shout-out. Okay, we've got a Dylan, we've got a Kira, we've got a Riley, we've got a Reagan, we've got a Trevor, a Cassidy, and a Jake. They range in age from 1 to 10, and they make life worthwhile. They're wonderful. That's going to keep Maldine. you busy. <laughs> and what do they think about Grandma and Grandpa being authors and on a book tour? Uh, they're pretty impressed with it. Um, uh, as one of them said to me a year ago, Nana, congratulations, you're an author. And I said, thanks, Riley. <laughs> <laughs> and I like those. You've got some good Irish names uh, sprinkled in there. <laughs> we do indeed. They're Fantastic. Well, so what's next for you guys? Um, we're going home after this. We've been out on the East Coast for two weeks. We head home for a week, and then we're back into the Midwest and Dallas, San Francisco. Our publisher, Workman, is sending us on a, I think it's a 15-city tour. It's pretty tough for old people, but we're hanging in there. It's, it's wonderful to get our message out and to get people coming back to us and saying, I wish I had had this book when my mother had cancer or, um, you know, I'm taking this book home to my friend, a co-worker, that has made it all worthwhile. Well, we're meeting so many wonderful people. One woman said, uh, your book has been so helpful. She said, I'm the advocate, and I'm doing the best I can, but I have MS, and I'm in a wheelchair. 
it's those kinds of things that make you appreciate no matter how tough you have it, there's always someone out there who's doing worse than you are, and it gives you the reason to say thanks for what I have. Yeah, and, I, you know, I just want to emphasize um, for folks that, that idea that, the, that the, the advocate or the caregiver needs to get the care as well, um, you know, at all of our wellness communities across the country and at other organizations like Gilda's Club. Um, there are so support, there are programs, uh, not only for the cancer patient, the cancer survivor, but also for the cancer advocate. We have uh, some of those in our um, in the book. I, I know, having been through it, I know how important it is, and uh, I can't tell you enough how uh, special I think all advocates are. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And I also know that, that some advocates have said that it's nice for them to have a place where they can just go and be with others who are going through the same situation, um, just to be, you know, kind of be together. It's a place where you can just really open up. You can really be yourself. That mm-hmm. um, that sometimes, as the caregiver, as the advocate, you really are. Uh, you have really have the pressure of mm-hmm. always being on. You know that the patient sometimes can say, "Oh, you know, I don't feel well today. I'm not going to go to work today, or I'm scared, or uh, you know." But oftentimes, as the as the caregiver, you really kind of need to keep your chin up, and you know, and you need to keep going. And I know a lot of those caregivers. Sometimes by the time they get to us and they get to a support group, the wellness community, they say, oh, yeah. this is really the first place where I feel like I can just you can you know, be myself and be honest and mm-hmm. just... And everybody else in the room understands. Understands. And they, connect, and they connect with that. Mm-hmm. They really connect with that. so important. It is. It really is so important. And I think that's why I love the title of your book, The Power of Two. Um, you know, that really, what, it really is what it's about. Uh, you know, for so many people. I also know that, you know, we, we hear a lot about how um, people have, as you've suggested, have brought in friends, family, adult children to say, listen, let's, let's divide and conquer here. You know, let's, let, let's figure out who's good at what. You know, who's good at the cooking part? Who's good at the comfort part? Who's good at the information seeking and gathering? And, and how do we sit down and figure out what everybody's skill sets are and really, as you said, take that team approach? Exactly. That was what I called the battle plan, Kim. I sat down that first night and wrote out categories and put names next to them of who could help me. Mm-hmm. And also um, communicating through uh, through uh, lines of, of communication. How do you express that, Jerry? Oh, you know, where when you have uh, phone lines or email um, lists, and you can communicate with people on a constant basis. And there are websites um, that will help you do that too, so you can get out the word to your. Uh, other far extended family and let them know what's going on without having your own phone ringing off the hook all the time. Mhm, mhm. And I know Brian, you said that that you know it's a little bit tough for you at first to to uh, walk away from the law, but that you have found a new love and a new passion through this work, through this writing and speaking around the country. Um, and and uh, you know we we certainly want to uh, want to let folks know about the book, The Power of Two: Surviving Serious Illness with an Attitude and an Advocate, and uh, to find out about the book, you can go to www.amazon.com. We're getting to the end of our show, and I'd like to ask each of you uh, quickly if you wanted to give any last uh, words of wisdom or pieces of advice to our listeners um, uh, today, particularly those who've just been diagnosed with cancer. Brian, I'll start with you. Um, yeah, hang in there. I mean, yeah. uh, uh, hope needs help, but uh, uh, get yourself a, an advocate and uh, get a tood. Get a tood. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, 
And uh, Jerry, what, what, you know, someone's just been diagnosed with cancer. Um, what advice would you give them today? I think the advocacy is a huge help no matter who it is, a son, a daughter, a coworker, or your spouse. And that coworker, spouse, advocate always needs to think in terms of we. It wasn't until I was writing the end of the book that I realized everything I did when I said we had the craniotomy, mm-hmm. we had blood clots. Um, it wasn't we, but in mind and spirit, it certainly was. It, certainly it was a was. team. Yeah, it was yeah. the power of two. Fantastic. There's one story. There's one part of it at the end. We we going through in, in uh, uh, through a cemetery uh, in in France, and uh, it just brought so much passion uh, into what we feel about it. Yeah. Well, I just I want to thank you guys so much for being on the show today. It's been a wonderful uh, conversation and sharing. Um, and uh, I know that our listeners have learned a great deal from you today and have taken away some both, I think, information and inspiration uh, from the conversation today. Again, folks, if you would like to order a copy of Brian and Jerry's book, The Power of Two, Surviving Serious Illness with an Attitude and an Advocate, you can go to www.amazon.com. I want to dedicate today's show to all of the, uh, the caregivers and advocates who are out there for their fearlessness and dedication and, and uh, dedicate to, uh, to all of our cancer patients and survivors as well. Um, your unwavering commitment really is an inspiration to all of us. And um, until next time on Frankly Speaking About Cancer, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. 